You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have Lily Corey with us. Lily has a very unique story, as all of our stories tend to be as we come out of this whole foster care, adoption, lifestyle, the things that happen. And today we wanted to talk with Lily because she's working with a nonprofit organization called the Mockingbird Society as a youth advocate, working through the things that we really need to to be paying attention to what we're doing within our lives and, and putting some real experience and, and help out in the world after she's had her own very difficult beginning. Lily, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you all doing? Oh, we're great. Thank you for coming today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had to overcome some scheduling conflicts before, so I appreciate you being flexible and allowing us to deal with everything we had to work through here. But tell us, how did you get involved in the foster care adoption world what what was your story like? What How did it begin? Oh, goodness. Um, so I have been in and out of care since the age of five. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Hawaii um, on the Big Island. And my journey began in foster care when I came home from my kindergarten orientation and we got a knock on the door and my younger brother and I were removed. And Um, And that, you know, I think there were a lot of factors that led to our removal, but um, the thing that really kind of solidified us staying in the system was um, when we were, when I was 11, um, we got placed into relative care. So at this point we had moved from Hawaii to Washington state, um, which is where I currently reside. And we were placed with my aunt and there was a lot of complicating factors that then led to my adoption. My brother and I, we got adopted by my aunt. Um, and you know, things were not super easy after the adoption, but, um, I knew that for me, having gone through that experience that I went through, I really wanted to, make an impact in the lives of other young people, like the, the way that the, the like ones who really cared made an impact on me. And so I went on this long career path journey of like volunteering, working in my community, um, and eventually going to college where I studied human services. I went to Western Washington university Um, and I did like a bunch of internships working in CPS, working in, um, what we call behavioral rehabilitative services. So like working with young people who have like particularly unique trauma experience. And then 
I decided that that system felt really broken, like just like the constant having to remove young people and not really feeling like there's a lot of change. Um, so I got really motivated to think more about like, how do we actually change the system? And I went to grad school. I went to the University of Washington. I got into the master's of social work program there and they have a specific policy track for policy and administration. And so I followed that track and I got linked up with uh, my first year there. I got linked up with um, the Mockingbird Society, which is uh, the nonprofit that I currently sit on, on. I'm a board member of. And I was kind of blown away about the way how how they decided to do this work, like throughout my experience in care and then also being like a caseworker there were so many things that you had to just do that it was really difficult to spend time to really center the young people. Um, but that was like kind of just like a given in the way that they operated at the Mockingbird. So I got to see young people originating ideas about how to make the system better. And then I got to see how, you know, the people who work at the Mockingbird Society take that um those ideas and alongside with young people and they advocate with legislators and they get, they get it done. Um, and that year in particular, like we extended, we extended foster care and we expanded like college access, which is incredible to think about. Um, so yeah, I've just, and then since then I've just been uh, plugging along doing, um, various systems work and policy work. Um, and that's kind of been the career track that I'm on right now. But that's how I kind of have been involved in it. Honestly, it's like kind of an understatement to say that this has kind of been my like life's work because it's really true. Like I've been involved in one way or another in like foster care related things since I was five. So yeah, that's I, that's a very long story, but that's yeah. kind of how I'm here today. <laughs> you know, you started in the foster system as a kid and a, then yeah. you experienced adoption and ended up in educated and and working in the system with caseworkers and moving on up to policy and 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 working with kids like is there a part of this that you haven't touched yet or, or are you just like an actual expert on all of it I that's actually funny because I don't consider myself an expert at all I think it's like because like I work with like young people who are so innovative and so much smarter than me like I don't consider myself an expert um but no, like I really, I guess like it's true. Like I've even, um, I did the, um, what is it? The foster youth, uh, foster youth internship in DC. So I've also, you know, I worked in a, in a, in Senate at the time of Senator Patty Murray's education office doing um, national work around young people's impact and system on like the national level. And that, you know, so I guess, yeah, I worked in it all. I mean, the only thing I think I haven't done yet is foster um, and be a foster parent, but that's like the next step. Right. But like currently I'm a CASA. I work, um, as a child advocate too, in, in the local court system that I'm currently, uh, I live in, in my community. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I really am about, about this and I really, really want to see, um, difference being made for, for young people because it's so important. Mm-hmm. It is very important. Can you just kind of explain for our listeners what a CASA is? Yeah, so um, and, and, uh, it's a court-appointed special advocate. Um, there's a larger program, but specifically in Washington State, it's, uh, um, it's the Washington State Child Advocacy, Court Advocacy Programs. 
Um, and so uh, where I reside, I'm a guardian at Lightum. Um, I'm a specifically assigned by the court uh, to work alongside the social worker to uh, make sure that the young person and the family that we are working with um, get their needs met and um, are actually being heard um, what their what their wants and what their you know what their goals are. So it's a it's actually a pretty empowering place to be in because it's it's I'm not in a space where I'm like like mandated to do X, Y, and Z. Like my real job is just to like really hear the family and hear the kids. Um, and I, and I've been working with some really incredible young people. Um, I, I like to say that like, I specialize in adolescence. Like I love teenagers. Um, and, and so that's kind of like the, the group that I, I usually gravitate towards and I end up working with because, um, I just think they have so much creativity and, they are, you know, the future in so many ways. And they have so many ideas that I think society often ignores. So um, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to be working with them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God that, that there are people out there wired to work with teenagers because, you know, as you can see with who's hanging out with us today, yeah. uh, that, that's our, that's my wheelhouse is give me a little one. That That's what I'm wired for. Amanda might suggest and I'll say it ahead of time before she has to, that, there's a good reason why my mind um, works really well with little ones. It might have something to do with the way that I'm wired. Um, I might be a four-year-old <laughs> at heart. <laughs> but, but yeah, th- there's a lot of people who are afraid to work with teens because teens can be challenging, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no doubt about it. Teens have their own level of challenge that they bring to the table, and um, and not everybody is prepared to deal with that. So, you mm-hmm. know, at least – if you have a newborn baby or or a three year old and that was maybe born addicted or something like that, they come with their own set of challenges for sure. Yeah. But they tend not to be the quite as severe of challenges oftentimes as what teenagers bring, right? Yeah. I've never had think- a four year old that have a baby. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've seen teenagers try. <laughs> yeah. I think you know, the thing that I, I have to constantly remind myself is that I, I mean, and that's one of the unique things is like, I'm not in a position of power over the young people that I work with. Um, and that I think really helps, um, frame the conversation. I think for me, I usually just like, don't go in with an agenda and I'm really open to hearing what they have to say. Um, and I also kind of meet them where they're at, like, yeah, the system sucks. (laughs) Like it really does. And so, you know, and oftentimes they're in this place where like people around them aren't um, saying that or aren't affirming that for them. And so it's, it's, it always surprises me when I like go and I sit with, with a young person and, you know, and they're talking about this and I'm like, yes, you are allowed to be upset. Like, yes, you are allowed to feel um, the injustice that you're experiencing. Um, Because I think a lot of people around them are trying really hard to get them in like a different place. But I think sometimes we just need to slow down and acknowledge the the pain that comes with like what's happening. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We wanted to open up a dialogue and talk with some of the listeners a little bit and just see what you guys have to say. We have a voicemail line. It is at 413-FOSTER-3. That's 413-367-8373. Now, we would love to be able to share some of your stories. If you have a couple quick stories you want to put on the air, or if it's something you'd just like to talk to us a little bit and let us know what you're hearing and what you would like to hear, that would be awesome. We would love to have that from you guys. 
So if you would reach out and let us know. Also, I'm going to uh, just assume that you guys know that we are talking about putting some of these stories on the air. So if there's some privacy issues, feel free to change a name. Don't use a name. I don't care. Just take care of the privacy stuff. We don't want anybody getting in any trouble on anything like that. We're not trying to out anybody's story out here in the world. So just be mindful of privacy. Again, that is the phone number is 413-FOSTER3, 413-367-8373. Thanks a lot. And we hope to hear from you soon. Um, and I think that that's a really great relationship builder. Um, and that's always been like an access point for me um, is the empathy that I carry with um, with their experience. Well, yeah, because you came through through the child welfare system yourself and you had your own level of trauma that ended up putting you because I'm, I don't know your personal story that deeply, but I'm just going to guess that, that most people could work on the assumption that the average kid who ends up in the, in the, in the foster care system, there's a good chance they've seen some level of trauma, you know, uh, that, that's not helped them grow and, and become that, that well-regulated adult that, that we think we should all become so easily. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for me, it, I'm in a little bit of a unique situation just cause like my trauma, uh, was like, it, it, it was externalized, but it was also really internalized for me. I think, you know, my parents, um, they, um, they really did try. I think that they had their own historical trauma that they were also battling as well. Um, that never got really addressed. And now that I'm like, you know, older, I have that hindsight, but in the moment I'm like, I was like, what the heck, why aren't you guys getting your stuff together to like, get us back and stuff? Like, why can't you, you know, love us enough to get your stuff together? And that was a narrative that I really like told myself. Um, but now that I'm older, I think I've, and with a lot of therapy, (laughs) I've come to have a little bit more empathy around, you know, what they were having to go through while, um, while, you know, my brother and I were not with them. And so, and, you know, for, for context, they spent years battling addiction, um, and, you know, domestic violence and, um, and we were, you know, severely impoverished. We were constantly homeless, (laughs) um, a lot of memories around that. And so, and, you know, as a kid, I think I was pretty, flexible. Like I didn't have the realization in the moment that anything was wrong because this just felt like it was my normal experience. Right. Um, but then there were some things that would come up, like maybe it's not normal that when the police are called, my first response is to go and to tell them to say, it's, it's okay. Like they're just, they're just having a bad day. Right. Like that was the the caretaker fixer in me as a kid that, um, that now in hindsight, I realize like really plays to like how I respond to other people. So that's how I feel like trauma has manifested for me. It's like, I'm having to really undo a lot of the the coping skills that I built when I was younger that don't really serve me anymore. Um, And also I I think that this term like well-adjusted adult (laughs) is like complicated because there are days where I'm like, am I a well-adjusted adult? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, a lot of, and that's, and that was one of the things that I realized that really helped me get there is that it's okay to let other people in and let other people help you. I think the only time I feel like a well-adjusted adult is when I leave the chiropractor. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that that's like the battle that I'll always have to face, right? Like, I think that there are just going to be things that come up that's like, oh, that's because I grew up the way I did. There's nothing like, there's nothing wrong with me as the person. It's just that this is like now something I have to deal with. Um, And that's really helped me reframe like my everyday experience of the world. So I wanted to go back to something you said earlier and at the very beginning you were talking about about in your early childhood and then the stuff that you dealt with and you mentioned the the ones who really cared. Yeah. Um can you talk a little bit about the people in your life that that really cared, the ones that did make that difference for you? Yeah, totally. Um so for me it was it's a compilation of people like um you know, when I was a kid I had I had teachers that I absolutely adored. Um, who really saw me. Um, I think about my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Hurd. Um, she's, she was the best. I mean, and she, I, I was fortunate enough that even though we moved a lot, I, I always ended up at like one elementary school that was kind of like locally covered a large area just because we like where we lived. Like, why is actually pretty rural. <laughs> and so there was like one school that covered an area. Um, and, you know, up until I, I left the island, she would let me come into her classroom and read with, you know, her kids. Um, and even though she she like kind of knew what was going on in my life um, and that it wasn't like, you know, perfect in any way, shape or form, um, she provided me with like a constant space where I could really um, shine. Um, and yeah, and she really, really believed in me. So a lot of love to her. And then as I got older, you know, we moved to Washington. So I had to basically re, re, (laughs) re meet everybody in my life. Um, I would definitely say my, uh, long-term social worker, Corey Hayes, uh, she really cared. Like, I think that she was kind of fighting an impossible situation, um, with my family but she really sat me aside and and kind of said like, you know, you obviously don't like what's happening and you have the power to not have this kind of life later on. Like you're going to have a time in your life where you're going to have a choice um, about what kind of life you want and you have the power to not want this. Right. Um, And so she really just kind of bestowed in me like a future. Like I didn't really know that I had a future, right? Because I think when you're living in the stress of everyday trauma, you don't really get to see beyond the next day. And so she really kind of opened me up to this idea of having a future. And then um, my adoptive mom, we have a really uh, complicated relationship. She actually passed a year ago. so still really reeling from, from that, but she was definitely supportive in a lot of ways um, and also not supportive in many ways as well. Um, but then also I would have to say like my friends in high school, their parents were um, extraordinarily supportive. Like my friends and their families would always open their home to me Um I cannot, like one of my best friends from high school, she sat with me for hours trying to figure out calculus because I was like, if I don't get this, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to graduate, you know? And so she like, <laughs> um, she, you know, and it's like the little things like that, that like the little people along the way who like were my cheerleaders 
um, who really get to share in that success that I get to sit in today. Um, because without all of those little pieces, like you don't think that like studying calculus means anything, but it like really did help me graduate. And I didn't, I didn't like what would have happened if I didn't graduate? I, I keep thinking about that. What happened? If, what wouldn't have happened if I didn't do this? What would have happened? And so those people get to share, I think, a lot in my success as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how how we, <clears throat> even as people who are perhaps not foster parents or, or don't have a specific role in the system, you still have a, a lot of ability to change a lot of things and create a lot of differences in lives. And, you know, uh, a great example would be um, a couple of our kids now have dealt with teachers who one specific kid who's got his own set of challenges. I remember one particular teacher. I I used to work with a guy a long time ago in a totally different job. And I met his wife who then went on to become a teacher and with a last name like Fuhrer, like when the kid comes home, that's his teacher's name. I'm like, I know that name. I know that name. And then I yeah. found out his teacher's first name. And I'm like, yeah, I used to work with her husband. I met her. I know this woman. And she was she was an amazing teacher and went above and beyond to really try and help him through a lot of his own struggles. Um, <clears throat> now, we've also had a couple other teachers. There's one, one, one of our children right now has a particular teacher who, um, though the school claims to be a very trauma-informed school, I will um, – I will question what the definition for some of those people is for trauma-informed because we've had to have a couple really serious conversations about, like, like these are the things that this kid deals with, and it's not his fault. And what you're seeing is not a, it's not bad behavior. What you're seeing is a, is a kid who's dealing with some coping mechanisms that were built in a very hard place in his very young life, and this is not his fault. This is not, you know, it's not all these other things you're assuming it is. It's trauma responses, and we want yeah. you to understand that. And that, that's been a very difficult journey with one particular teacher just because of the way she's handled it. I don't think she perhaps understands the uh, the amount of impact she has on a young kid's life. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree. Like, I see this a lot, and I think, you know, for me, the difference was I was never a quote-unquote problem kid. Like, my behavior never manifested in a way that was distracting or, like, disruptive to class. Um, like if anything, I was really peace, appeasing to like my teachers and whatnot. Um, but I definitely see this, like with the young people I work with directly, like they, um, will often be like labeled like the problem child. And then therefore like the teacher doesn't want to engage anymore with them. Right. Cause they're, I mean, in a lot of ways, like that's their, that's their response to, um, kind of the secondary trauma that they're experiencing working with that kid. Right. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's hard because sometimes I think, um, teachers don't realize that they are actually, uh, human service providers as well. And I think we put so much on teachers, um, that, you know, to have a truly trauma-informed school, I also, also think about like, where's that social emotional support that also helps the teacher, um, as well as like, where's that emotion, uh, uh, social emotional, uh, training that we're giving our teachers, like, where is that self-care that we're supporting our teachers with, right? Um, because teachers already have so much on their plates. Um, so I definitely see both sides, but I'm also just like, no child is a lost cause, in my opinion. Um, and I think we need to really, really act that out, like act that value out. 
especially if you're in a human service <laughs> serving profession. Absolutely. And some people, you know, sometimes they just have a bad day and I get that. Yeah, I get that. Totally. But but sometimes with, with kids who've been in the hard places, who've had hard things to deal with, it that's a big deal for those kids to have to, to be put in a position. Oh, there's a little one who's not happy. Um, but it's really difficult for kids who've been put in that position mm-hmm. by adults who are, are having their own, their own hard time, their own bad moment. And yeah. it's, it's really challenging sometimes. And as foster parents or adoptive parents, I think part of our job is, is to be willing to stand and support that kid primarily in that. I try not to be that the big, loud, scary, loud voice guy who walks into school and, and makes a big stink about something like that because it's rarely helpful to do that. But mm-hmm. I will also say that sometimes, sometimes a kid needs to like see that they need to see that they are not only supported but protected in the moments where someone else's bad moment makes them feel unsafe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that that's been a challenge that we've had to deal with with a couple kids out, honestly, um, because not every school that that is quote unquote trauma informed is um, informed properly. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Or it may just be, you know, my, I know some of my older kids, um, that they, they went to uh, to school and there was one particular teacher in the school and they're like, Dad, I don't know how they let her teach science. Like she's teaching science from 1920-something because that's when she was in college because she's like that old. I think actually, I think she just retired a year or two mm-hmm. ago. But this particular teacher was teaching some pretty outdated stuff. And, and, you know, but think about it. If, if she was, her formative years were in the, in the 20s or 30s or whatever, I forget what it was. But, you know, half a decade ago or half, half a century ago, like if that's where she came from, I mean, God love her for teaching for so long, but so much changes in yeah. our knowledge, you know, not just in the science principles we're teaching, because I'm going to tell you, I've looked at like the science stuff about how an atom works and what they're teaching kids now. And I'm like, huh. That's not at all what I learned, but you know, there's plenty of things there that, that, that change, but human psychology and, and the way that we view things like trauma and, and difficult things that have happened to kids at young ages and how that affects their brains and what we can do to create a space where these kids can grow and learn and heal, that's changed so much over the last 20 years, let yeah. alone the last 50. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of teachers who, who, who maybe haven't gotten that, that, uh, some of those, those things brought into their, their perspective very, very well. And so, you know, whether you're right, the teaching profession, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm just being, you know, judgmental on all teachers here. Cause I'm definitely not, I'm not a teacher for a reason. Cause this guy right here, yeah, I would not last very long in a classroom cause I don't, <laughs> I don't abide silly BS very well. And I yeah. was, I was in middle school. I was a middle schooler yeah. and we may have had some of that in our in our heart and soul at that age. So, <laughs> so I'm not mad at all teachers, but there are there are some places where I think it's as a as a foster parent or an adoptive parent or just a parent in general, it's it's our job to go to go out and protect our kids in a place where maybe they're messing up. You know, the the school or a teacher or a principal or somebody in their life is messing up and it's our job to go out and be an advocate for those kids. Yeah. And I'm definitely like saying something. I mean, I'm in a privileged position now where I get to like work with professionals who I train a lot of professionals around like LGBTQ plus related topics um, and working with like, um, how do you, how do you as a direct service provider 
um, like handle uh, unjust systems towards these kids. And often I have to have the uncomfortable conversation of like, you know, you may be out here looking for resources, but I think you're the resource, right? Like you're, you're here, you're taking this training, you care. And so now that you care, you actually have to start applying, you know, those values and start calling out um, injustice when you see it, right? Because that actually really resonates with young people. Like they're going to look at that. They're going to say, oh my gosh, this person actually cares because they're saying the one thing that no one else will say. Um, and and it's not always pretty, right? Um, because for at least a lot of our, um, a lot of people I work with, they work in really rural environments, which um, rural communities really do care about the young people that are in their community. But I think sometimes they just don't the information or the knowledge around what it means to support an LGBTQ plus young person or what it even means to be LGBTQ plus. So often I feel like the people who I train then have to go out and like talk to those people more intentionally. Um, And it can be really hard because that young person is caught in the middle, right? Of people not knowing things. And that's not fair to the young person because they didn't do anything wrong. Right. Um, We live in one of those rural areas and I will say that, Mm -hmm. you know, for sure that's, that's not something that's, that's, uh, you know, we're in the middle of Missouri. So draw an X and and across the United States and we're slightly to the left of the the center of that X, you know, we're, we're out here in in what people would call the, uh, the flyover country. And there are plenty Mm -hmm. of people who still have different ideas about all that. And quite frankly, um, you know, there, there was a, uh, an old uh, radio show that I used to listen to many years ago. And I love what the, what the guy said because his whole take on it, and, and he was he was a right-wing political type guy. Yeah. Um, and it's not what you would yeah. necessarily expect from him, but his the way he viewed it was, he said, I don't personally really care how you choose to titillate your orifices. And I went, yeah, yeah, that's it, right? Like, like you do your thing. I'm not mad at you. How you do your thing? It, it's probably not exactly quite the same as as everybody else in your life, and that's part of the beauty of this world is that we can we can just get along, we can accept one another, and we can try and help one another. We can support one another. We can do all kinds of amazing things, and I don't really have to care about what mm-hmm. it is that that you feel on certain topics. You may be a Democrat, and I don't have to hate you, or a Republican. And I don't have to hate you. Even if you're independent, I still don't have to hate you. We, we could actually just create a place where we could all get along and support one another, regardless of our personal choices. Yeah. And I definitely, I always say the health, safety, and wellness of children is not a political debate. Like, it should not be a political debate. Like, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about supporting young people who are queer or on or in the LGBTQ plus community. It's like, it we're talking about their health, safety, and wellness, right? Yeah. Um, and part of that is is knowing that if they are, you know, out here, that they're not going to be harmed. And I and I do mean that from a standpoint of like systems harming them, but also from a standpoint of like, you know, them ending up homeless, them, you know, potentially having suicidal ideation or behavior, and then also like other people inflicting violence on them, like. That's that's what I mean. Like that shouldn't be. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we should not be doing that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's a baseline, and I think a lot of people would agree with me. So. Yeah, and yeah. Our oldest daughter identified as a lesbian, and and quite frankly, I had to learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. I was I was raised in this community. 
I was raised, you know, more than 20 years ago, we'll say, I'm getting old, uh, more than 20 years ago, I was raised in, in, a, in a rural community where that was not something that, that you would openly say in, in that time and place. Yeah, and totally. We've had to learn how to, how to change our, our reaction to these things and how, how, to, how we talk about it and, and all that. There's a whole lot of stuff there that, that we have to realize that if you take just your average kid who's dealing with that, that's a lot. Now you take that kid and you pull them out of their home, you pull them out of the things that they know, and you you pull them into the foster system because maybe they're in a situation where they are in physical danger, and so they have to be pulled out of that. They have those additional traumas from being before they were pulled out of out of a, a biological setting, and now they have the traumas from being pulled out because even if it's the safest thing for them, it doesn't mean that it's not going to cause more levels of trauma. And we're neck deep in this stuff at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and like, I, I think for me, like my my situation is, like I said, I think a lot of the trauma I faced was really internal because I did a very good job of hiding. Um, so like for me, like I'm a, I identify now as like a bisexual, um, a bisexual woman um, with <laughs> still always questioning my gender because um, what is gender, right? Um, but um, I think the thing that I had when I was, when I was young, um, when I, I knew that I was something like, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what it was. Right. And, you know, my bio parents were actually pretty, uh, chill about all of that stuff. Like they were, they really like, even though, um, there were a lot of complications at home, like they, they were always like, we love you no matter what, you know, like that was the rhetoric I always grew up with, um, from them. And, there was a lot of like really free hippie, like to explore yourself, like that's fine. Um, and then I ended up with my, with my adoptive mom who, um, was conservative, um, evangelical and, you know, I, the, the, the challenging thing was like, I knew that if I were to come out, like it would not be in any way, shape or form, like accepted, but also I really fell in love with, with my church community, I found a lot of like community um, that really encouraged me. I found a spirituality that I didn't know that I needed. Um, and then I also had, you know, a lot of community service opportunity through my church. Um, and I, you know, to this day, I, I, I think I definitely still have like a faith, but I don't know if I have faith in the church, if I'm being honest, um, because of the way um, in which I was treated as I, as I, you know, grew up. But that's the thing that I don't think people realize is that actually a lot of like queer kids have faith needs <laughs> yeah. and like they find a lot of solace in their communities and what they need is love, not rejection. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm actually really happy that a lot more um, faith institutions are like stepping up and like really supporting these young people, but it's also just like so complicated. Um, and it's not, it's not black and white. Like it's not nuanced. Like I knew that the church that I loved was harming people like me. Right. But I also had a shield. <laughs> I didn't let anyone know who I was. Right. Um, so it's just so complex. <laughs> I grew up in a church. It was, <clears throat> I think rather than just um, conservative, fundamental would be a better word for it. Yeah. Fundamental. And thank you. Yeah. Yes. We, we were very fundamentalist. Um, yeah. I might even use the cult word occasionally when I describe the way that I grew up. Um, I try not to talk about it too much because I still have family members who, who right. get really upset when they hear me call it that, right? Because right. they still believe in a lot of that. 
But the truth of the matter is at the end of the day, we are physical beings. We also are spiritual beings. There's there's a spiritual Mm -hmm. need there. And I think it's really important for us to realize that and come at it from a place of love. Because Mm -hmm. I know, I know that when I reread that that whole book after I left the fundamentalist group that I grew up in years later, I went, huh, this book talks a lot about love. And it didn't we didn't hear that a lot in the in the group that that I grew up with. We we just Mm -hmm. didn't I mean, yeah, the word was thrown in here and there, but but it was really rarely ever a fundamental core concept. And as I've as I have gone through my life, I have spent probably the last twenty something years trying to figure that out. You know, I, I stepped away from that group and and had some atheistic tendencies for a moment, and then realized, nah, yeah. now that takes too much faith to to be an actual atheist. And I don't <laughs> think I can I can I can abide with that. I, I went really agnostic for a long time, and then yeah. I became what you would would call really just just a searcher, a searcher or a seeker, and trying to yeah. figure this stuff out. And at the end of the day, um, you know, and this this may be a controversial topic for a lot of people, but I think religion has done more to damage most people's view of of God than than anyone else on the face of the earth has. I, I think you know, learning that, finding that spirituality in your life is important. It's really important for most of us. Mm-hmm. And um and it's something that maybe you can't do in a faith community that that you've been involved with or one that you find, but but there is a way to 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 find a group of people that you can work through that with and mm-hmm. and learn about. And I'm not one who's here to tell you that that anything other than, you know, your standard um your your standard uh, sexual thoughts are 100%. It has to be exactly this for it to be okay. Yeah. Quite frankly, yeah. that's not my job. That's yeah. not my job. And if we want to start being very fundamentalist and talking about why, why everyone is going to hell, we're going to have to talk about the lifestyle that most of, of America lives around alcohol, right? <laughs> because yeah. alcohol is one of those things that I look at and go, wait, 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 there's way more about not being a drunkard that's talked about in all those pages. And we have a society that is very alcohol-centric. And so let's yeah. just, instead of focusing on what the other person is doing wrong, how about we just connect with other humans and love and support them? And that's that's been one of the core tenets of Amanda and I's life as we mm-hmm. especially learned about this this journey of trying to help kids and foster care. There are so many things that they're dealing with already. I don't need to find another way to, to separate us. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, for me, w- one of the things that I think about when I was, you know, struggling with this idea of like, why is the church coming at people who are, you know, in the LGBTQ plus community it is like in the doctrine that I, you know, grew up in, there was a lot of emphasis on the treatment of how we treat the poor. Right. And and I, and it, you know, infuriated me that um, we we had so many hypocritical tendencies in the way that we treated, you know, people in poverty um, versus, and we wouldn't confront that, but we scapegoated queer kids. Like that, that to me just didn't feel uh, feel authentic. Um, and you know, if I'm being if I'm being completely honest, like one of the reasons why I to this day, consider myself like a servant or working in a serve in a serving human serving profession is because I really do believe that that ties me to my faith. Um, I really do feel in a lot of ways, um, like that is, um, living up to what I've been called to do. 
and living up to um, a kind of spirituality that I I feel drawn to. So um, not from like a weird savior perspective either. I don't <laughs> I don't feel like I'm out here saving people, but like um, I just feel like I'm called I'm in a lot of ways called to serve, and um, that means everyone. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I found that, that there's two calls that I'm not allowed to ignore. One yeah. of them is when my wife calls me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anybody out there who's who, who has a wife can probably understand that, right? Your wife yeah. calls you, answer that call. The other yeah. one is if you if you have a calling that's been placed on your life from God. Those are the two I, I, I really yeah. do my best to never ignore those two because they will come back to roost if I do. And that's part of what we do, right? I have this calling on my life. My wife and I do. You know, Mm -hmm. Amanda and I, we we have a calling to kids from hard places. And I'm going to be real honest. A lot of it comes from Amanda's own upbringing because it was very difficult for her. Mm -hmm. And this is something she's felt called to her entire life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as as I joined her in some of her own calling, I I started to realize, hey, like there's this stuff here that I'm pretty passionate about too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it sounds like, you have found that calling. And most people I know, most people do not understand why they're on this earth, why they're here. What's the whole point of their life? Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you have a couple kids, you make some money, you buy some stuff. Yeah. Kids grow up and they leave you. They have kids of their own. You love on the grandkids. And um, in the middle of all that, there's like beer and football and, and yeah. Amazon stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Full of disclosure, <laughs> the Amazon driver delivered two packages today. I'm just as guilty. <laughs> But, but but that's that's like the purpose of their life for most of the people I know. There's not a lot of people who know why they're on this earth and how the world will be different because they lived a hundred years from now. What what changes have you made in this world? And my gosh, like from what you told us at the beginning, it sounds like you you've got a list of things that are going to be different. You're dealing with like national politics and stuff, right? That's that's friggin' huge. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that experience was so great because it taught me that I never wanted to work or live in DC. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It taught me actually where my calling was and it was not in DC. Um, You know, and, and for me, I, I had spent uh, my final year in grad school really devoting to the academic side of what kinship actually means. I did a lot of like studying TANF, studying different state TANF policies and really looking at the gaps in kinship care. Um, And so I then um, submitted that kind of proposal to the foster youth internship. And that's through the uh, Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. Um, And that's, I mean, being in the foster care world, that's like the best of the best and and the brightest of the brightest who have lived experience going and and really advocating and being in DC. And that was a life-changing experience for so many reasons. And um, just to be able to go and serve um, my community, but also work with a really rad senator. Senator Murray is wonderful. Um, and be in like a really welcoming uh, office that really cared about what I had to say. Like that meant the absolute, the absolute world. But also it allowed me to really uh, solidify and realize kind of the life, life that I wanted and, you know, in DC for me, I could have, I could have seen myself working like 12, 14 hours a day. Right. And I, at the end of the day, I just kind of realized that one, I needed to be connected to young people. Like I was not as connected to young people as I wanted to be. And two, like, I have a lot of other goals that I want to, uh, 
that I want to achieve outside of the work, outside of the work that I do. And I just didn't see myself being able to do that in DC. Um, and I actually, I have a, a partner who is now my husband um, at the time. And we had been having a lot of like conversation about like, you know, what would it look like to move to DC? Like what kind of, you know, and, and at the end of the day, we both just stopped and we were like, I don't know. And like, he came to visit and we were touring and we were just like, oh man, it's so humid here. <laughs> so we were like, I don't know. Um, and so we, you know, and ultimately I was really blessed because when I, when I graduated from grad school, um, and ended my internship that summer, um, I ended up being able to get a job here in, in Washington state serving, um, the state from a statewide perspective. So, um, and I was really grateful because I love the Pacific Northwest. Like I love, I love hiking. I love, I'm very stereotypical Pacific Northwest person. I wear the socks with the Birkenstocks. Like that's my life, you know? Um, <laughs> and I, and I, yeah. And I just, I love it here. So I, I never really wanted, I never really wanted to leave. Um, and I'm really grateful that I've now been able to, you know, um, get married. I have a home, I have two cats and I have a dog and I also get to do what I love in my work. So um, I, I really had to prioritize the whole perspective for me, not just my career ambitions. Wow. Wow. Now, mom, if you're listening, I'm going to go ahead and apologize because there's, there's a couple things my mom taught me. Number one, you never get into a woman's purse. And number two, you never ask a woman her age, but I'm going to break that second. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you seem fairly young to have had this much lived experience. So how yeah. old are you? I'm actually 27. Okay. Yeah. 27. yeah. I mean, let's be honest. By the time I was 27, um, I had not made that many differences in the world. I know this already. Yeah. Uh, actually, we hadn't even we hadn't even really talked about foster care at that point in our life. Um, we were still raising some some young kids. We well, we started at a very early age. I am 43 years mm-hmm. old. 43, 40, I think I just turned 40. Yeah, 44. Sorry, I lied. And um, my oldest son is, uh, he is 23. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we started fairly young. Um, the, our oldest daughter would have been 25 this year. So, yeah. And uh, was not our biological daughter, but we raised her. She called me dad. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, having had that much, that much lived experience in life, I think is really sets you up for the ability to walk out and make a, a huge difference in the world. And and we talk about in, in a lot of the, the groups and circles that I run in about legacy and, and that sort of thing and, and what you're going to leave behind. And the I, I, the truth is, is that we're all going to leave a legacy, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have a choice. You're going to leave a legacy. The only thing you have a choice in is what that legacy looks like. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you have a lot a lived experience that could really lead to some huge changes for a lot of people over the next however many years you have left to, to chase this. And you have a passion that's really obvious for helping kids and especially hearing teens and making life changes for them. And that mm-hmm. that's just amazing. Um, what's your, what's your next steps look like? You know, are you, are you getting ready to run for governor or, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone keeps asking me if I'm going to run for politics. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm not. Um, partly because I think um, I I don't know if I can handle the the public criticism. If I'm being honest, um, I don't take. I'm I'm like a like a 
perfectionist and I'm trying really hard to like shed that rate. Um, but I don't think I could run for politics. I think the most I would ever do is like a school board thing just because like maybe my kids are involved and I want to be involved. But um, I like to think of myself as more like a person behind the scenes. Um, I really look at myself as like a servant leader. So what am I doing in service to other people to help the collective um, mission? And I really think about myself. I don't really think about myself as someone who leaves a legacy because the way that I want to go about this work is in community and in collaboration. And so if my name's on something, there better at least be four other names in there too, right? Like, um, because I don't think that this work gets accomplished if just one person is bought in, right? Like, I just don't think it is. And so, um, you know, for me, you know, that, that really is, I guess, the, the next step is like, how do I really build that community and how do I really build that buy-in and how do I really build that coalition? Um, and I think it starts with, you know, meeting people and, and getting to know them a little bit deeper and getting to know their passions and really thinking about ways in which like they can be bought into the work. Um, I know that I bought a lot of my friends <laughs> mm-hmm. into this work, um, because of who I am as a person. Um, like one of my best friends, she works, um, as an occupational therapist in, um, like, Uh, incarceration and rehabilitation and a lot of that has stemmed from like very intensive conversations that we've had about you know the criminal justice system and like how she herself as someone who grew up you know with no context of that can actually impact that system based off the skill set and the passion she has so you know shepherding a lot of people I think is is one of my life's ambition but if I'm being honest with you I actually just stepped away. I just gave my two weeks notice at my current position um, because um, I'm actually going to take some time for myself. I think this pandemic has been a lot. Um, Actually, like I said before, I lost my um, adoptive mom about a year ago in December of 2020. And so that was extraordinarily difficult. Um, And I, I just need some time to reset, recalibrate and uh, you know, I want to, I want to spend more time hiking. I want to spend more time with my dog. (laughs) I want to spend more time to myself. Um, my husband and I want to start having kids in the next few years. And I know that that time for myself is going to disappear real quick. Um, so I, I just kind of want to enjoy that a little bit more before I have to, um, I have to, you know, uh, really, I guess, uh, step into responsibility that I can't step away from. Right. And so I'm, I'm allowing myself some rest for the next, for the next month or so. And then from there, I'll figure out something else that I'm going to do. But, you know, like you said, I, I've done everything. So I, and I hope to really still stay in policy and in systems change because I really do love that work. I think I just need some time to, to breathe. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's something that I think we all we all need to really take that time to just breathe. You know, walking hopefully on the backside of, of a pandemic and seeing seeing some of the just I mean generational trauma we'll call it that has occurred because of something that everyone has been exposed to. I I have a one of my my youngest um, boy in the house right like he's his first year of kindergarten involved a screen. And a teacher who he didn't actually lay eyes on and trying to figure out what that meant. Now, yeah. mind you, 
Um, he doesn't have a diagnosis yet, but mm-hmm. if they ever get around to putting a diagnosis on him, it's ADHD. This boy is yeah. he's he is a ton of fun, but he you the, yeah. a ton is a lot of fun. I'm just gonna say it's a lot. And yeah. he, he's a kid who, who's gonna struggle with that side of it. And he's never known a world without some level of pandemic struggles. Because yeah. You know, he at his age now, he's not going to remember the years before that. His entire existence is going to be painted by this, and mm-hmm. we forget that. We forget that in the kids that we're working with and the kids that we're helping. We forget that in our own lives. You mm-hmm. know, at you know, my my own kids have. I, I've tried to sit back, and I'm pretty certain even my older kids have never known a world where there wasn't a boogeyman attempting to kill Americans. Right? Like they remember. Yeah. 9-11 as a formative event in their very early yeah. childhood. And yeah. some of these these global traumas or national traumas are things that we've all experienced and all are going to have some level of responsibility to deal with as we get older. And, and you know, we, we can help them through that as best we can. You know, but really we're we're depending a little bit of extra um, extra weight on you here. We're depending on people like you who who are working in, in that policy world to to realize yeah. that and help others see that as as a real struggle that we all need to face. Because quite frankly, we can choose to close our eyes and not not deal with this these traumas and these struggles mm-hmm. today, and it's going to come home to roost, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. I think one of the one of the things that I constantly am grateful for is the fact that, you know, the Washington State Legislature really does care about young people in care. And so when the pandemic hit, they were like, oh, gosh, what can we do? Right. Um, and so people really like jumped into action. I think a lot of young people were really vulnerable, but I think a lot of like the potential harm and repercussions of what could have been could have happened could have it could have been. Five million times worse if like the state did nothing to respond. Um, so you know, I'm I'm really grateful that people saw the urgency and actually got to it. And it's actually really interesting too, because what we ended up doing with the pandemic is is we ended up removing a lot of accessibility barriers, which I'm like, see, you guys can get out of your own way, you just haven't been. <laughs> so um uh I really hope that you know we collectively realize that, you know, we actually can be a little bit more human centered in the way that we design this. Um, And that, you know, bureaucracy, although people point to that as like an excuse to not do anything, it's actually just human made. So we actually can redesign and we actually can rethink it and we actually can um, impact young people in a more positive way. Obviously we have so many things that we have to, you know, continue to work on. And I think you know, one of the things that I was particularly let in on was, you know, the mental health of LGBTQ plus young people. Like if you're in the house in an unaffirming house, like that's so hard. And so, you know, uh, a lot of the the local uh, regional and in, and in Washington state, we kind of have this, this dichotomy happening where Western Washington is a little bit more resource than Eastern Washington is. And so a lot of um, resources on the West side, they really opened up their like online platforms to invite people from across the state. So it was, it was really beautiful to see how, you know, community came to the aid of others who didn't have access to things when the world, you know, decided to implode. Um, and so I'm really grateful for the response, um, that the state has had. And, and the other thing I would say too, is that I think in order for me to really be able to continue this work, 
self-care is just so important. I know that that's just a word that I think people like throw around, but like, there's so much pressure, (laughs) at least I feel so much pressure to like do things quote unquote the right way and to like be professional and not have my trauma show up in the workplace the way, even though we're talking about things that are like really deeply personal to me, um, that, you know, that pressure just builds. And I think when it's coupled with not feeling like I can do the things that I want to do outside my house or feeling like I have the potential to be really sick or get my family really sick. And then also coupled with grief, I just need, I just, I just know now, thankfully that I'm older and I have a little bit more retrospect that if I kept going the way that I was going, I was going to burn out. And we, and we can't have people who are passionate about this field burn out. It's it, we really can't, we can't afford that because the young people can't, um, can't afford that. So um, I, I, I've, I've sat with a lot of like, is it selfish for me to take time off? Right. But also like, I'm not a martyr, right? Like I'm not a martyr. Um, I'm a human and it's okay to like, to, to pause and to relax and to, and to, and to be okay living, living good for a minute and then going back into the fray because refreshed me is going to have so much more of an impact than numb me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, I'm going to steal a a picture from someone. I can't remember whose, whose it is, but it's the idea of you can't fill someone's cup um, Mm -hmm. when your cup is empty. You know, you want to be able to fill them, fill their cup from the excess that that comes Mm -hmm. off of yours. And that's, you know, that, that, that's our responsibility to fill our own cup, to do the things that help us be ready and willing and able to help others. And, and so, you know, I know for me, for me, I, I, I start my, my regular paying job at four o'clock in the morning, which is stupid early. Nobody likes that. (laughs) Um, and, And quite frankly, I am not one of the early guys. We've got guys who start earlier than that by choice. And I think they're crazy, but I still get up and I only live, 10 minutes from work, maybe yeah. I still get up at two o'clock in the morning because in that time frame, that allows me some room to come out here into this office. And, and I have a house full of kids. It's noisy. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, we have, we have lots and lots of psychological disorders. If you, if you want to call them that mm-hmm. from the DSM listed in my house. And so I don't have a lot of calm, peaceful time. So at two o'clock in the morning, I can come out here into my little office and sit down here at my little desk, and I can sit here with some silence, some prayer or meditation. I can read. I can spend some time you know, doing all those things, and those are the things that make a difference for me. And I know that because when I don't do it, when I put it aside for a while, my wife says to me, you haven't been doing your morning routine, have you? She can tell. Like it makes, I know yeah. it makes a difference. And so what does that look like for you just to fill your own cup in a way that allows you to show up for others? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. I think, um, (laughs) I've had to really think about that. Um, I do not wake up early. I'm one of those people who wakes up at eight 30 and then rolls into the nine o'clock meeting. (laughs) (laughs) I love to sleep. That's like one of my favorite things. Um, I think a good night's sleep is like one of my favorite ways to recover. Um, I spend a lot of time with my, um, animals. And so I really try to hard to intentionally take a 10 minute break from work where I'm just playing with my dog or I'm snuggling with my cat. Um, cause that really like recenters me. I'm a very, like, I'm a kinesthetic kind of person. And I actually think, um, I have ADHD, but we're working with a doctor right now around that. Um, and I can't, I can't stay still at a desk for prolonged periods of time. Like it's re- working from home has actually been very difficult for me in a lot of ways. Um, 
but I've, I've had to figure out how to like cope with that. Um, and so, um, I will, you know, get up, play with my animals. Um, I drink water. (laughs) I have to remember to drink water. I have to remember to eat food. Um, and then at the end of the day, I, you know, put, put it, put it away, (laughs) turn off my phone notifications and I go and I have a conversation with my husband, like, we're just like, how was your day? What is something you're doing? What are you reading right now? Like, tell me more about this. Um, he's actually in the process of writing a novel, which I think is so cool. Cause I am not, um, <laughs> eloquent when it comes to writing. Um, and so we'll usually talk about that or we'll go on a walk together. Um, and then on the weekends, you know, for me, it's really about spending time with friends. Um, I think right now that's a little bit more limited. So my bubble's a little bit closed. And so, uh, you know, I have a a best friend I go on walks with, um, I go hiking with my dog. And then, um, I also am a, um, a Lindy hopper. Are you familiar with Lindy hop? I don't think so. Okay. So it's an African-American vernacular jazz dance that was born in Harlem in like the 1930s. Um, and it's a partner dance and it's like done to like jazz music, like, um, Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and, um, all these other really amazing jazz musicians from that time era. And it's, it's a, it's a very high energy, like very rhythmic dance. And I just feel so good every time I do it. So, um, yeah, I do that (laughs) and it, and it releases so much because it's twofold. It's a community thing where I get to see people that I know, right. Um, and of course it's, it's, it's a Vax and Mass thing here in Washington state. Um, and as of right now, it's a Vax, Mass and boosted thing in Washington state to get access to the venue, but I go, um, and I get to see people, I get to dance with people. So I get that physical activity, but I also get that social piece. And so, um, for me, that's also really regenerative. And I usually do that like two or three times a week, um, to like restore myself, um, from a physical standpoint. Because the trauma manifests in the body. Like, I know that that's been like a thing that has like recently come out, but for me, like that's real. <laughs> oh, so yeah. I need to like exercise it out. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, my methodology makes me sound lazy mostly because I am. <laughs> uh, one of those little things that most folks don't know about me is um, technically speaking, I am a disabled veteran. And mm-hmm. what that really boils down to is I tore some stuff up in my back a lot of years ago. So the physical stuff, it's really challenging for me. Yeah, you know, it, I'm not the guy to go outside and play football with because mm-mm, nope, nope. There's a part of my body that's going to say absolutely not, you fool. Now lay on the ground. That was dumb. You know, yeah. <laughs> me. Yeah, I mentioned you know being well adjusted um, earlier today. Somebody I don't was that earlier, but somebody mentioned that well adjusted piece to me. <laughs> uh, you know, well adjusted for me only means well, I just walked out of the chiropractor's office, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's my story. But for me, it's, it's not the physical side. For me, it really is a mental side. And I need to be able to uh, calm myself and get my head in a place where I can have that conversation with folks. I can be that person in a good, healthy space. And so I, I, I've took me a lot of years, but I finally realized that and that's what it does for me. And it sounds like you have done the work to figure out what it is that, that, that does that for you as well. And I can only hope more people will listen, more of these listeners will hear out there and they will go, oh yeah, what is it that that makes me feel good? What is it that yeah. resets my mind and my body and makes me mm-hmm. ready and able to serve others? Because 
you're a great example of someone who not only has that awareness, but is willing to serve others. And and I love that about your story, that you're changing the world based on those simple things that, let's be honest, they've known about this for like 2,000 years or more. You know, just talk to the Buddhists, talk to the to the people in the ancient writings, and they told us to do this stuff. And for for, for a couple thousand years, a lot of us have just not been listening very well. Yeah. And I think that's like one of my beefs with like the self-care movement is that it feels like really like, um, like Westernized and like whitewashed when like, you're absolutely correct. Like a lot of the things that people have been doing for like thousands of years, it's just been like part of their practice. And we just are now catching on like in Western society, I guess. Um, and so for me, I try really hard, like not to co-opt that, but like, it is really, again, about like, you know, what makes me feel good. And, and the, uh, sorry, the last thing I forgot too, is that I love the garden. I didn't realize I loved a garden, but I love it. I love the idea of growing my own food. Um, because you know, par- part of poverty trauma is like, we were, there were days where it's like, what are we eating? And people will ask me like, you know, what is it like to be poor? And I was like, well, have you ever had powdered milk? Like, no powdered milk, yep, you know, poverty. <laughs> Have you ever had tang? Yeah, um, that's what it is. Um, and so um, um, for me, there's something really healing about being able to grow my own food. Um, and then also, um, you know, one of my personal goals is to be able to, my my husband and I, we bought a house right recently in the last like year or two. And um, that is a big, big stabilizing thing. I never thought I would own a home. Um, but we are able to garden now um, because we have land, right? And so I want to be able to build more boxes to be able to donate uh, to food banks and stuff. Because I think, one, I realized like with the two boxes I have, we can't eat all the stuff I produce because <laughs> uh, I'm going, I'm going crazy over here. Um, but two, I just think it's it's important um, to to give back too because if this is something that's really healing for me, I can only hope that it's going to be healing for for another person. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I actually, my, um, eight year old came to me this morning and said, dad, I want to have chickens so we can get eggs. And, and we've done that in the past where we lived before we're, we're in town now. I mean, I mentioned we're in rural Missouri, but we're in city limits now. And I don't know what the rules are. I'm pretty certain we could find our Mm -hmm. ways around whatever Mm -hmm. it is to have a couple hens, but we used to do that because I grew up poor. My wife grew up poor. Yeah, I grew up in that in that life, and we actually for a long time we we were living in a very rural setting, and we had goats, milk goats, and we had chickens and ducks for eggs, and and my kids loved it at that time. And yeah. it's one of those things where you get to put your hands on on food where it comes from. We had a huge garden. I, I think it was it was probably. 20 feet wide by about 40 feet deep. We had all the room to, and, and you know, I got into where every weekend when I was off, I was, I, I would just make bread for the week because we couldn't make all of our own stuff. And it was just so amazing. And we forget sometimes it's all those simple things that, you know, and, and I don't care who, where it comes from. I'll co-opt it. If it works, <laughs> I will bring it into my life if it works. And yeah. it was it'd been great for that. And um, right now, right now we have a German shepherd in our backyard. So if we're going to have chickens, we're going to have to figure out how to like not have meals for the German shepherd. <laughs> yes, yes. I have a very enthusiastic boxer who would be like, is this my toy? Yes, yes. Yeah, I grew up with boxers. Yeah. Yes, I know them. <laughs> Look, it's a toy and it's a meal too, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
but those are the things that that I think can really serve serve yeah. kids to be able to see what that is, put their hands on it, and do mm-hmm. some things that are very very grounding. You know, um, you mm-hmm. know, Amanda had to step away because we have a screaming baby, and she's not a happy baby right now for some reason, and she's trying to find the happy place. But but you know, we um, <clears throat> we we've had a lot of struggles with anxiety and 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 things like that in our family, and some of that comes from her background for her mm-hmm. and our kids as well. Um, you know, I've, I've had young kids have panic attacks and we've had to work our way through it. And one of the, the super powerful skill sets we found is learning to do some grounding exercise, some things that, that help ground you to this or earth, this life, this, and get back into the moment. And I, I can see where, you know, what you're saying, being able to go out and get in the garden and pull the weeds and plant the plants and spend mm-hmm. some time pruning this and, and harvesting your own foods where that would be a very grounding thing for you to really help you become somebody who's not focused on on the struggles in your life, but rather to have something that's literally growing right in front of you. Yeah. And like, in all honesty, that really took time. I don't think I was really able to do that until this last year or so. So like, I like to think about it, like before I was 25, I was just like, a little bit all over the place, like constantly living in anxiety. And I think you know, with the financial access that I've gained now that I have, like, a, I'm a full-time, like I work full-time, I have, you know, a home, I have a, I have a partner who's also financially working as well. Um, there's a lot of relief that I think I'm now starting to experience. Whereas like I was in like survival mode. Cause like, I didn't have a safety net. Like I didn't have anything to fall back on. So I was constantly grinding. And so, you know, for me, I have to acknowledge too, that like, part of this relief comes with um, access that I think a lot of young people don't necessarily have in their life, in their, in their life necessarily at the time that they really need it. So, I mean, thinking about ways that we can actually like provide that relief for young people, I think it's so important. Um, and I, re- for me, like, I really think about it as like, how can we provide financial relief for young people? because that was just like such a huge stressor trying to go through college and then go through grad school and live and eat and, (laughs) you know, uh, pay my bills (laughs) Mm. that I had because I was now an adult. (laughs) Um, you know, now that I'm, now that I'm older and I have a little bit more access, like the relief can come, but it's such, it's so sad to me that I, that I'm now starting to experience relief at the age of 27 right? When it could have, it could have been earlier or like my peers, not a care in the world. (laughs) Like I would, some of the people I lived in college with, like they didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't have to work full time because they had parents who were paying their rent. That wasn't, that wasn't for me. Like I had to work all the time. So, um, yeah, just think, just having a lot of gratitude for being here in this moment, but also thinking a lot about like where I've been, um, and realizing that that's not fun either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lily, I really appreciate you telling your story today Mm -hmm. because there are so many people who don't understand this. And, and like I mentioned before, you, your perspective comes from so many places, right? Like you have this, this lived experience that, that allows you to be able to really understand all the different parts and pieces of this struggle that, that everyone doesn't necessarily have the ability to understand. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I want to thank you for, for, um, for giving us your time today and sharing your story and helping to inspire somebody else out there. Because as much as I, I may be a little bit of a, um, 
political skeptic. I might actually kind of look down on on the way that a lot of the politics are run these days. Um, yeah. It's not terribly helpful to to have your mind in that spot all the time. I know um, because I do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but to see somebody like you out there who has lived experience, who probably has some of the has had some of the same um, the same reservations about politicians' ability to help us. But you're making the difference. You're making certain yeah. that that view is heard, and yeah. you're changing the world. Yeah, thank you for that. I think you know it's it's definitely difficult, but I think one of the things that I've realized at the end of the day is like a lot of these people are really human, and they actually do care. They just don't know. Like, that's why I think, you know, it's important to, to share the reality. I I don't think about like sharing our story in a way that is uncomfortable or not on the terms of like the young person sharing it. But I think it's important for people who represent us to understand the diverse reality that their constituents are going through. And that absolutely includes young people in foster care. And so if we can get real about that, if we can build empathy with that, I think we can actually really change stuff for young people. So that's why I do what I do. Uh, well, I want to thank you. I, I just, mm-hmm. just for doing it and then, and then helping to inspire the next generation to follow in your footsteps. Mm-hmm. And it's my absolute pleasure to serve. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Lily's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled <laughs> Studios. Studios.